Our scripture reading this morning comes from the prophecy of Malachi. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Malachi, and we'll be in chapter 2 today, reading verses 1 through 7. Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And hear now the word of the living and the true God. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. May the Lord bless the reading from his word this morning. Now, the, whole, the opening hymn was to sanctify you, to expand your hymn knowledge, and to grow you as the people of God. Um, that's a joke. But, yes, it is good to be here. It is good to uh, be with you and see you. And uh, it seems to be a good day. I've had interaction with many of you so far, and it's been, it's been great. And so I promise you this, as me who loves you and you who say you love me, you will know the last hymn. I, I promise you will know the last hymn. And we will sing it with joy and reverence to our Lord. But this morning we are continuing in this series in Malachi, and if you have taken the time to read Malachi, which I would encourage you to do so, it does not take very long to read it, it's only four chapters, you may notice that it has difficult themes to it. There's not a lot of uplifting messages that are being presented here. There, there are moments throughout that, that are uh, encouraging and, and wonderful to hear, but overall the book itself can be very discouraging. It deals with uh, profaning offerings, divorce, stealing from God, and cursing. Week one, we see that God said to the people of Israel, I have loved you. God declares that. He says, I have loved you. But then Israel pushes back and essentially says, well, prove it to us. Prove that you love us. Now, Israel should have and could have easily looked back at their history and seen all of the ways that God has loved them and provided for them and protected them. They need to only look to the exodus to see that they were enslaved for centuries, and then God in his great power came in and rescued them out of that. Signs and wonders, the parting of the Red Sea. And they say, how have you loved us? 
Well, what about the conquest going into the promised land where God went before them, where God conquered their enemies and fought for them? How have you loved us? Or in the captivities, the various captivities that have, that have come around where nations from other areas come in and take them away from their promised land, yet God preserved his remnant. God preserved his people. And yet they still say, how have you loved us? Now, I may be wrong here, but this may not be the best question to ask of Almighty God. When we look at our own lives when we look at the circumstances, when we look at the way that God has blessed us and has loved us to look up at him and say, well, prove it. But I think we get to that point so often in lives is that we don't, it's not that God hasn't shown us love, it's that we don't see it in our current circumstances or we don't want to see it. But there is some encouragement in the book of Malachi as well, as I said. We looked down a couple weeks ago at uh, that the Lord is, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. That God is at work, not just where we can see him now, not just where we experience his working, but God is working even beyond the borders of Israel. He's working beyond the doors of our church. He's working in the community. He's working in the world, and he is accomplishing his purposes and his will. And then just a couple weeks ago, the pastor took us through the profaning of the offerings that were given to him. The, the people would bring these, these imperfect animals for their sacrifices, these animals who were blind and lame and, and sick and, and ones that did not fit the criteria, that did not fit the requirements that God has for his sacrifices. They, did not, they were not pleasing to him or he did not accept them because they were less than what God has required be given to him. And even in this moment, the priests look up to God and say, Well, how have we defiled your sacrifices? Well, ask and you shall receive. These kinds of questions that we ask God when we, when we essentially challenge him or say, Prove it. I think we can, if we don't want an answer from God, we shouldn't ask the questions. We think of the various times throughout Scripture where we are told that we have no right to challenge God. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? How, why does the potter have any right to say, or why does the clay have any right to say to the potter, why have you made me this way? God can do whatever he wants with his creation, and God has set requirements and boundaries for us to follow that is acceptable to him. Israel needed their sin to be revealed, just as we as sinners who will never understand the full uh, sinfulness of who we are, we also need our sins revealed. There can be no good news in this fallen and sinful world if the bad news hasn't been made clear first. Uh, I'm in an evangelism class right now for seminary, and this is one of the big themes that we've been looking at, is people have to be able to see their sin first. Because if they don't, the law makes no sense. If we don't see how far we are away from God, we won't want to draw closer to him. So, with the book of Malachi, think of it 
as like a progress report being given. And it's not a good progress report. This is the progress report that I often gave to my parents when I was in school. You know, you look down, you see the D's and the C's and all that. And this isn't one where you get down to the end and you see choir and you have an A and you think that's going to get you by. But this is not a good progress report. And as we'll see here in chapter 2, um, not to be discouraging, but it doesn't get any better. So I would ask you to prepare your hearts and we will go to the Lord in prayer as we look at a very difficult passage of scripture. So let's pray. Father God, we come to you as sinners. We come to you in, needing, in need of a Savior. Father, we pray that if there is any sin in us, Lord, that you would reveal it, that we would deal with it, that we would come to the cross of Christ, that we would lay it at your feet, trusting in your good promises, that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of those sins through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would keep me from error this morning, that you would cause me to decrease so that Christ might increase, for it's in his precious and holy name we pray, amen. Malachi chapter 2, verse 1, we'll see a similar theme to two weeks ago, but Malachi is addressing the priests here. He says, and now, O priests, this command is for you, and I don't want to sit on this for too long because pastor uh, went into this a couple weeks ago when he dealt with the end of chapter one but we'll just give a little bit of a, a refresher here about the priests because we are not priests in the sense of the levitical priesthood here um, but the priests here were the representation they represented the people of god before god um, if we look back at Deuteronomy 33, verse 10, the first part of that, it says that they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your laws. I think so often we think of priests as just being the ones who are up to their elbows in blood making sacrifices and, and dealing with the animals, but their, their scope of work was so much more than that. They, they guarded the holy things, and here in Deuteronomy, they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your laws. They were responsible for the understanding of these laws. And yes, we have a personal responsibility, but we also have pastors today who teach us the law of God, who instruct us, who, who exposit scripture. But that doesn't give us the excuse not to read our Bibles and study it and grow in our personal holiness uh, ourselves. We all have a personal responsibility before God to grow in holiness. And a false teacher is to be held at a much higher standard and a much higher level of accountability than just the everyday person. The book of James says that not everybody should become teachers because they will be judged with a harsher judgment. We look at the unfortunate reality that is a fallen world, and we see cults. And yes, when I preach, you will often hear me talk about the cults. It's a, it's a fascinating area that I like to study. But the, the sad thing about a cult 
is that they are taking scripture a lot of the time, they are twisting it, they are forcing it to say something that it doesn't say so that they can gather followers and lead other people astray. Those leaders, the Bible says, will be judged with a harsher judgment. Yes, the people who follow them have a personal responsibility as well, but the leaders who lead them into deception will be judged harshly. We see this in a lot of uh, evangelical churches today with the with hyper charismatic movements and we see it also in our entertainment uh, I think of right now there's a big conference going on for the the TV show the chosen and the writing staff and the the leadership behind that that show um, call Mormons their brothers and sisters they have atheists who are part of the writing staff. They, they try and make it, they say, as plausible as possible, but when you look at it, they take what is in scripture, what is clearly said, and they alter it and they change it to make it fit what they want it to say. So when we look at the priests that are being talked about here, those who were responsible for uh, making the sacrifices, those who were responsible for teaching and upholding the law of God, when these sacrifices, when the people of Israel would bring these blind and lame, uh, imperfect sacrifices to them, what they should have said when they looked at them was, this is unacceptable. This is not something God will accept. This is not something God is pleased with and go to the law and show what God requires and say, go back and bring something that is acceptable. But instead, they offered these animals on the altar. And so uh, if I can give a little bit of an illustration here, imagine that you are in line at your job for a big promotion, and your boss wants to come over for dinner and talk to you and get to know you a little bit so that he can see if you're a good candidate for this promotion. So you decide to go to the store and you're going to make him a great steak dinner with all the best uh, vegetables and everything that goes along with that. And so you go to the store and you look at the steak and your, your heart drops because of inflation and steak is very expensive. And so you think, well, you know, I, I still want to offer him something. Um, this steak over here is the almost expired steak. And this one here is the cheapest one because it's a little bit green around the edge and all that, but we can cut that away. I'm sure the, the rest of the steak is fine. And you go and you get some rotting vegetables because they're cheap, and you bring it home and you make the dinner and you serve it to him. Okay, I, I would be willing to bet that none of us would ever do that if we were trying to impress somebody or receive a blessing from somebody. So if we would never do that, to somebody who we respect and honor and love, why would we offer God any less than what he requires of us? And there are some, uh, this, is, this is kind of a, um, an illustration of the, the regulative principle and the normative principle. Where the regulative principle says that God has laid out exactly what he desires to be, on how he is to be worshipped. That in scripture, he has given us that foundation. He says, this is what I require. This is what I want of you. This is what is pleasing to me. So do it. If you love me, you will do these things. Where the normative principle we, says essentially that if God doesn't forbid it, then we can do it. 
And if God doesn't command it, then we don't have to do it. And this has led to an open door of a lot of pragmatism to make its way into the church, a lot of things that are unnecessary, and for us to entertain each other rather than stand in awe and worship a holy and just God. So again, we would never do this to somebody who we respect and love, but yet so often the church does this to God, and that is what is being talked about here. They are offering things that are not acceptable to God. Some harsh words are, are used here in verse 3. And uh, it says, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Now, it is a glorious day in every aspiring preacher's life when he gets to talk about dung in the church service. And uh, I won't go too into details because of little ears, but this is a very harsh thing that is being said here. And we, we can laugh about it and make, make, make light of it a little bit, but essentially this is a very important verse. And if we go back, if you have your Bibles, and turn to Exodus chapter 29, we'll see a little bit of context here on what God is saying through Malachi. So it's Exodus chapter 29, and because I'm a guy and I like the gory details, for the sake of it, we'll just start in verse 10. It says, Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. And we'll stop there for just a minute. Notice that all of this takes place at the altar. This is all stuff that is being offered in the sanctuary on the altar. But then we get to verse 14 and it says, But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. So the skin, the flesh, and the dung was not to be offered on the altar of sacrifice. It was to be taken outside of the camp, away from the people, and burned up out there. And one commentator who was looking at Malachi chapter 2 and his, his thoughts on verse 3 was the reason God was saying, I will put this on your face is so that you have to go outside of the camp. You are unclean. You are unworthy of offering these sacrifices. You are unworthy of bringing these sacrifices. You are shunned. When we give God anything less than what he requires, we dishonor him. And these priests here, what's, what seems to be being implied in verse 3, is that they, weren't even, they were not only just accepting the sacrifices the, the way that they were, imperfect and blemished, but they weren't even doing the sacrifices in alignment with what God has commanded. That they were offering the sacrifices with all the uncleanness as well on the altar when some of it they needed to take outside the camp. They were dishonoring him. They were dishonoring his name. And that's a big thing today, is 
the name of somebody, the reputation of somebody, and it was a big thing back then. When, when we talk about the name of God, we're not just talking about Yahweh and just that word. We're not just talking about Jesus and the word that is Jesus. We are talking about everything that they are. Holy is the name of God. Just is the name of God. Merciful is the name of God. He is a God who fights for us. He is a God who goes before us. All of this is included when we talk about the name of God. And when we put on the name of God, when we claim the name of God, we need to honor that name in doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. And so when we think about our day-to-day lives, when we think about us being Christians in a fallen and anti-Christ world, I am of the belief, and of course I fall short in this, don't hear me saying I'm perfect in this, because I'm not, I'm far from it. But when, when we as Christians go out into the world in our workstations, in our work areas, we should be the hardest workers there. We should stand out from the rest of the world. When you go to school, you should strive for greatness. Not just for the sake of your grade, but to say, God has gifted me, God has blessed me, and I'm going to stand out as somebody apart from the rest of the world. In your personal devotions, in your prayer life, have they become routine? Or do you take time to stand in awe of God before you open his word and go before him? When you live your Christian life, do you live it every other day of the week as well, and not just on Sundays? Do you give God your best? Now, we are required to be perfect. That is a requirement. We often hear preachers today say, God doesn't expect perfection. Oh, yes, he does. Absolutely, he does. And that's one reason why we cannot please God on our own. Because we're not perfect, but Christ is. Now, there are no more priests today in the sense of the Old Testament priesthood, but the Bible says that we as believers are a royal priesthood. We are a royal priesthood, and Christ is the great high priest who not only intercedes for us, the people of God, But he was the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. He is the perfect sacrifice, the one that could not have been made back then or today. Because every one of these animals, even if they fit the description of what God required them, were still tainted with sin by living in a fallen world. God accepted what he commanded, but ultimately it was all to point forward to the perfect and final sacrifice that is Christ Jesus and his work on the cross. When we try and earn our salvation, and every other religious system in the world is work-based in some way, even atheism is work-based in some way because they will view that they've done probably more good things than bad, and if there is a God, then he'll overlook all the bad because you've done good things and helped a little old lady across the street. Okay, Every single system is a work-based system except biblical Christianity. 
And I'll put a little asterisk there because, in, in a sense, it is a work-based system, but it's based on the work of Christ, not our work. We are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. And we cannot rely on our works. And when we come before God and try to offer him our good works in hopes that he'll be pleased because we, we gave him something great because we helped the old lady across the street or we gave to a charity or did whatever. The book of Isaiah in chapter 64 says that they, those works are like filthy rags before a holy God. The only acceptable offering to, to God, the Father, is Christ. And when we come before God in worship, when we sit in these pews, when we live our lives, is this at the front of our minds? Do we strive to live holy lives? Do we strive to be sanctified? Do we strive with, with relying and, and believing the promises of God? Because if we don't, let me try and remind you here that we can rely on the promises of God. We are not going to earn our salvation. We can't earn our salvation. That's the bad news. But the good news comes in Christ. Now, moving on to verse 2, we're really, really getting through this here. Uh, if you will not listen, he says, if you will not take it to heart to, to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay to heart. The problem many of us face is that we have become routine. We don't take our worship to heart. We come here, we sing a very hard song first, and then a less hard song second, then a very noble song last, uh, if we're looking at today. But we sit here and we sing, we hear a message, we read our Bibles, and I hope, I hope that you are here and this is a joyful time for you. I look forward to church every week. I look forward to seeing you all, but more importantly, I look forward to being in the presence of my Savior in this kind of corporate worship. I look forward to the days that we come to the Lord's table and partake in that, the means of grace. But that wasn't always um, something that, was, that I could relate to. Church was very routine for me growing up, and even now some of those, those practices still make their way into my life. And I, I, I think of uh, prayer. So when, when we eat a meal... We pray before the meal. Before we go to bed, we pray before we go to bed. But I find myself reciting the same prayers over and over again. And it doesn't mean that there are days they, they don't come from the heart. But in my sinful state, there are days that sometimes I'll look back and I'll go back to prayer and repent of a heartless and empty prayer. Now, it's, it's kind of easy to do that as we're teaching my kids how to pray and, and learning the catechism and all that, but they're still on spiritual milk. I'm on spiritual solids, and we need to consider that when we come to our worship, is where, where are our hearts when we come before God? Now, we can go into it a little bit, and I won't take too much time, but think about like the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name. May your name be kept holy. When we recite this, are we thinking about that? 
do we long for and desire for Christ's name to be holy in a fallen world, in our own hearts? And what does that mean? When we pray the dangerous line, thy will be done, do we mean it? Because if we want God's will to be done, and I assure you God's will will be done, whether we like it or not, but we are opening ourselves up. We are being vulnerable and saying, Lord, have your way with me. Have your way with the world. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And for many of us, that means that we have to let go of the things that we're holding on to, that we love so much, that keep us in a, a, a repetitive nature of sin. And to put off the old man and put on the new and follow Christ and pick up our cross daily to do so. Does this apply to all the areas of our life? God wants genuine love. God wants us to love him because we love him. We love him in Christ Jesus. One of the big debates that has been going on for centuries is do we have free will or not? Well, we have the freedom to act within our own natures. And when God saves us, when God replaces our heart, we don't become robots. But our desires change. We see the goodness of God and what he has done for us. We see that he has rescued us out of hell, out of that judgment, and brought us to life. Even though we didn't deserve it, and we still don't deserve it. But that's grace, and that's mercy. And as we go through Malachi, even though the progress report isn't good, we will see that mercy and that grace shine through. God keeps his promises. God keeps covenant with his people. Because this could be our progress report today as well. We don't deserve it. But we serve and worship a holy and merciful God. We're called to hear. If you will not listen, think of Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is how love is applied. When Jesus was talking about the greatest commandment, he said, Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets come down to these two. The love for God, the love for neighbor, the moral law. And this is how we honor God. It's not empty obedience. It's not just checking a box saying, okay, well, I didn't murder somebody today. I'm doing great. But it's looking at John 14, 15, where Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. One of the proofs of our salvation, one of the signs that we have been regenerated, is that we obey Christ out of love for him. Now, it is a command, and we all should do it, and we should call the world to, to obey Christ. But we who are in Christ, we who have been saved, obey Christ because he first loved us. And a little bit of, of closing here. Um, God's name is often thrown around today. The honor of God 
is thrown around today. And it, it can sometimes be mixed in with just what people think everybody wants to hear. Think about uh, conservatism today. So Republicans, you, you hear a lot of the God bless you, God bless America, and, and, and taking God's name and putting it forth. But then you look at so many of their lives that are on display, and you think, are you really using the name of God there? Gavin Newsom down in California put up abortion billboards all through California using the Bible to justify abortion. Name of God is slandered, and blasphemed, thrown around all over the place today. And I don't want to get too into this. Uh, I don't think I'm the most qualified to talk about it in a sense, but I will just say this. When we think about the conflict in the Middle East right now, both Jew and Muslim have denied Christ as their Messiah. We should be praying for them. We should want them to come to a saving faith, but yet they both claim to worship the one true God. And in that, they have also dishonored the name of Christ. No people or nation should expect blessing from God when they constantly dishonor him. This is why the church is a city on a hill the light of the world, because we have the truth, we have the gospel, we have the message that Christ has, has, has given to us to go out into the world to make disciples. That's our duty as a royal priesthood, to preach the gospel. And our nation has dishonored God for a very long time. So when we look out those doors we can be discouraged, but we can also be encouraged that God will not let his church fall, that God is at work in areas that we have no idea about. But in verse 2, he says, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Now, this could be God cursing the physical and material blessings promised to the priests who were receiving the people's offerings, or... The pronouncement of blessings uttered by the priests at the time of the sacrifices, which would then become a curse. Commentators are divided on this. But both are not good. But the blessings of the priest at that time of the sacrifice becoming a curse, that's a dangerous place to be. Think about the, the classic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Imagine if that became a curse. The Lord curse you and abandon you. The Lord turn his face away from you and withdraw his mercy and destruction is brought upon you. I would urge you, church, to take seriously the your Christian walk, to consider your heart. And if you are in a place where you're struggling spiritually, and I know we, we, there are mountains and valleys, I would encourage you to make this time a time of repentance, to go before God. If you need counsel, come see pastor or one of the elders. They would love to talk to you. 
That's why they're here. But you, as leaders in the church, pastors and elders, have a great responsibility to your people. You who are parents have a great responsibility to your children. You are not good enough. And if you are here this morning and you are not in Christ, if you are not relying on him and him alone for salvation, and you are striving in, in your works to try and be pleasing to God, it's not going to work. You will never be good enough. Only Christ is good enough. And he came to earth. The second member of the Trinity entered into his own creation. Lived the perfect life, the, the life that God requires you and I to live. And he suffered the death that you and I deserve. And he rose again on the third day. See, the crucifixion is a lot like these opening things of Malachi, very discouraging. But then you get to the third day, and you see that we don't worship a God who is dead. We worship a living God, a God who conquered death, a God who conquered sin, a God who will one day wipe every tear from our eyes when he returns and his dwelling place will be with man. So I urge you, if you do not know that truth, that I, I pray that now would be the time when, when this salvation is, is made clear to you, that you would repent and turn to Christ as your only hope. You need to see your sin. But for you who are in Christ today, all of this should be uh, somewhat encouraging, I hope, because we recognize God's love for us. We recognize his holy name, and we strive to bring honor to his name, and that great day of judgment will be the greatest day that we will ever experience because Christ loved us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, that you have preserved it for us, that you have not left us to ourselves and our own works, for there is no hope in that. But Lord, you have given us the gift of your Son, the once for all perfect sacrifice for sins. And Lord, we thank you for calling us to yourself. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you that your promises are sure, that nothing can take us out of your hand. Now, Father, as we sing this last song, would you continue to work in us? Would it be pleasing to your ears and glorifying to your Son, in whose name we pray? Amen.